Welcome to the Innovative Accountant Podcast, presented by Integrated Advisory by Wealthgate. Join today's host and CPA, Tim Coldwell, for thought-provoking ideas, information, and best practices from leading experts focused on supporting the accounting profession and the integrated advisory community. We have a wonderful guest with us today, so let's get started. Welcome back to this edition of the Innovative Accountant Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Coquell, and we have a really special episode for you today. Joining us from Toronto, Ontario is Melanie Russell with Kalex Valuations. Thanks for joining us, Melanie. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on our show. We're, we've got an exciting topic for our audience today. We're going to be digging into business valuation, succession planning. We've got a lot of great uh, topics that we're going to touch on from uh, business owners, when should they be getting valuations, what's involved in evaluation, what are the costs, what level of reliance can a business owner or potential buyer have on evaluation, what are the important valuations in issues in succession planning, how is COVID impacting all of this. So we've, we've got a lot of uh, great discussions that we're going to have. Um, Melanie, I, you know, our audience, uh, probably many of them know you uh, as, as we're speaking to our county community. But I want to uh, just give a, a brief introduction of your background. You've had an amazing career, and uh, we're very excited to have you on our podcast. So obviously started your career as an accountant. Uh, you worked with PwC for a number of years, where I think you obtained your uh, CA designation. Mm -hmm. Worked Correct. with uh, KPMG and, and PwC in senior roles over the years, where I believe you started uh, learning about business valuations and starting your career in corporate advisory. Correct. You founded Kalex Valuations in 1996 in Toronto, uh, which has grown to become a leading boutique provider of independent business valuations, dispute support, tax dispute, transaction advisory services to your clients. Your firm has been involved in valuations and other engagements for clients ranging from small owner managed businesses to large public corporations with multi-billion dollar market caps. That's quite, quite, a, uh, quite a set of accomplishments there. More designations than I can count. Uh, your business card's getting pretty full these days. So we, exactly. uh, yeah. you know, your CA, your CBV. I even think somebody told me you had the second highest mark in Canada on your CBV, which is pretty impressive. Oh, uh, you, you. You've got your SIM, Certified Investment Manager designation on the investment side. You're a Certified Fraud Examiner, Certified in Financial Forensics, and that's just a few of them that are on the list. So you've, you've obviously spent uh, a career learning and educating yourself. Uh, not only that, you're a knowledge leader in the community, giving back through your role as president of the GTA Accountants and Finance Network, where accountants and financial professionals share their knowledge and experience with their peers. And because of your extensive professional training and experience, you're sought after and very active in teaching business valuations and related topics at various universities, professional organizations. Uh, and you also uh, are involved in running the premier preparatory course program for CB, uh, CBV students, excuse me, in Canada that are taking their national membership qualification exam. Uh, many, many accomplishments, Melanie. I, I'm very impressed with uh, and followed your career for quite some time. But let's go back to the beginning. So you, you grew up in Manitoba. Uh, you're in Toronto today. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about your family background. Yeah, so, so grew up in Winnipeg. Um, dealing with the lovely weather in Winnipeg and uh, went to university there, started as a summer student in PwC, went back after the last year and then wrote my exam there and decided to to look around and just ended up in Toronto um, and joined joined uh, what became KPMG uh, in, when I came to Toronto. And your your accounting roots with that, what what was the driver? You know, I, I've come from an accounting background. We've had a lot of guests uh, on this podcast that started their careers in accounting. I'm always very interested in what led you down the accounting path. Why did you uh, start in business? What was the draw for that for you? That's a great, great question. If I go, I guess I have to go back to university for that. And during university, I thought, well, I'll take some typing courses and other secretarial courses because my mother was a secretary and then I ended up taking a bookkeeping course and I thought this is kind of cool and I had a computer course and it was kind of cool so without having any idea of what else to do I thought I'll try this this bookie this accounting thing 
and ended up just being sort of something that kind of fit in. It was, it was very interesting in terms of all the different aspects. And then as most uh, people go through their uh, CPA, uh, CPA now, you kind of realize there are many opportunities. Mm -hmm. So until you get that CPA, you don't know what else is out there. But once you get that, you start to realize there are a lot of opportunities. So after getting the CA at that time, it was, well, let's explore. This, this audit stuff was very nice, great learning experience, but let's see what else there is out there. And so corporate advisory and uh, obviously you were, you were talking to people within the firms, probably PwC or KPMG at the time. What drew you to the corporate advisory side? What was the, the interest there? Well, I looked at, you know, within the, the great thing about big firms, um, just like big corporations, there's usually lots of different places to go. So when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grow up after getting my CA exam, I, uh, passing it, I realized that, you know, there's a bunch of different opportunities, but let's, I kind of focused in on maybe tax and then maybe this other area that specialized areas. So I looked at tax and I just, I, I spent some time in um, in in the tax group as uh, uh, during busy season. Realized maybe this isn't quite what I want to do, and then researched and went in. Ultimately, went into the financial advisory group and uh, one of the firms. And what was great about that is you're exposed to various aspects. So there was the corporate finance, there was the valuation, there was the forensic, there was the um, the insolvency. So you kind of go around and you can see, get a sampling of a lot of different types of work. So very, very good exposure for sure. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's exciting. I went through a similar path in my career going out of audit into tax, but I chose mm -hmm. tax and now I'm more on the tax. advisory side. I, I, you know, that big green thick book, uh, although it's exciting at times, uh, I, I think oh, the choice yeah. you made is maybe, uh, maybe opened up some other avenues for you. So that's, that's pretty exciting. Well, our handbook, I'll just tell you our handbook um, right now is about this thick and half of that or more than half of that is, is in French. So that's uh, quite a big, big difference, right? Yes. We're, we're, we're sort of moving towards more standards, but, but we certainly don't have the tax act or the, the handbook or IFRS level of, uh, uh, coverage. There's no shortage of reading to do in, in this business for sure. And as you, as you stepped out, I want to, so you, you worked within the firms for a number of years, built up your knowledge within the corporate advisory side. What was the trigger for you to, to start Kalex? Yeah, I think you said you'd started that in around 1996. Um, right. What was the driver behind that for you to go out on your own? Well, I, I had went out for a stint in industry for a bit and then came back to the firms and really enjoyed the intellectual piece at, at firms. Like it really is, um, learn, you, you learn so much at firms, whether they're big or small. Um, and, and then I think it was really with the second child, I decided it wasn't that I wanted to work less than 150% of full time. It's just wanting a little bit more flexibility. And even at, even at that time, um, well, well, well before COVID and um, still wasn't quite the flexibility. So originally I went out thinking that what I'll do is just do a lot of teaching. And as long as I have enough to pay the mortgage, maybe that's a little bit easier on, um, on the family. And then very shortly realized, oh, teaching's a nice sideline, but you learn, you know, I like being in the thick of things and, and, uh, doing real work. So quickly fell into practice slowly and then set up my own practice. That's really interesting. I, I, you know, you've done a lot of teaching obviously with being involved in the GTA network. And I think you founded that or president of that. Um, mm -hmm. so that's been a really core piece since you started. I didn't realize that. So who are you teaching to when you sort of left, uh, the national firms? I was I was teaching at a, a few universities part time and teaching. I did some teaching for CPA, a very a provincial group, primarily at that time Institute of Chartered Accountants of Ontario. That's now CPA Ontario, CPA Canada, and I was doing some UV prep work and School of Accountancy work. So pretty broad base of accounting and finance education at the time. And, and then obviously moved into more of the 
public practice service side of that. How, what was right. that like when you first got started? You, obviously, you were attracting some clients. Um, was it just mm -hmm. yourself? Did you have some other people that you started the business with or did you kind of start it all on your own? Yeah, great question. Actually, how I really started was I, I knew nothing about being entrepreneurial. I came from the big firms and I thought the world began and ended at, at the big firms and I knew nothing about what else was out there. Um, so when I went on and started to teach, then I, you know, people would call me and say, oh, I heard you're on your own. Can you do some subcontracting work for me? It's like, okay. And so I learned, you know, the smaller uh, dealing with smaller, mid-sized clients as opposed to what I was dealing mm -hmm. with with the bigger firms. Um, so it was a very, so I did a lot of that. And then finally just ended up saying, okay, I'll, people are calling me directly somehow to, to do files. And so it just ended up uh, sort of starting my own. So it was, de it was definitely me at the first. Um, and to think about having to do the work, hire employees, manage payroll, manage tax, my own, our own tax returns and it, everything else. I thought that who can do that? Mm -hmm. How, that, how is that even possible? So didn't even anticipate, uh, getting additional people and then realizing that, um, it, it, you really, you, you can be a sole person if you want a sole professional, but it's much better if you can have, you can train people. And although it may be a slow process, it can be very, very helpful. And you're also giving back training someone based on what you know. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, not having to be chief cook and bottle washer in your company and being able to right. add some, some depth to that. I mean, you, you've built a very impressive firm. Um, you know, I go back to my midsize accounting firm days and we had corporate advisory teams and it's always a challenge to find trained and talented people in these organizations. There's, you know, the, the, the nationals do a great job of building that talent. But they're hard they to attract, especially if you're a smaller business and you're trying to get going. You need entrepreneurial people that are willing to invest and, and do that. And so I'm I'm really interested in your story and how you built your team and what you sort of attribute to that success. That's yeah, that that's a certainly one of the most challenging things, I think. One of the most challenging things is that running your own practice is the people attracting people, retaining, managing them, managing expectations. And especially when you come out of big firms because they attract, you know, the big firms attract the the, the stars, the superstars. Um, and coming out of that environment where that's just, everybody's a superstar pretty well. Mm. Um, so it's a little bit different of a mindset. Um, doesn't mean there aren't great people out there that, that don't really fit the mold of a big firm or aren't comfortable in a big firm, um, but it is, very, it's very challenging. One of the ways, just funny enough, because I've been doing um, education with accountants and, and training for CPVs um, for a number of years, I've managed to, to meet a lot of good students, quality students through those, through that educational um, avenues. So that opened up some doors to attract some team and uh, and kind of get going. So when, when you, yeah. your services have really become quite comprehensive, like starting off as a niche, that's one thing to maybe be doing valuations, but you're doing so much more than that today. Talk a little bit about the services your companies provides and the team that sort of complements because like you say, trying to do it all, that's, that's a challenge, but you've obviously built up some team with some unique uh, skill sets as well. So just share a little bit of that with us. Sure. Sure. And I think being at a, starting at a big firm when they're, when you get exposure to a bunch of different engagements, you kind of realize different types of engagements, but often when you start off on your own doing anything, um, you don't necessarily have the, someone doesn't necessarily think you have that capability mm -hmm. of doing everything. So it's often, I find a case of you do one file and you become an expert. And then all of a sudden you've done so many different files. You go, I'm an expert at a whole bunch of things. How did that happen? Right. Um, so, so I think it's, so the, the kind of areas we're in are, I guess we can categorize it as planning type execution and then, then fallout and then dispute or fallout. So we do a lot of work where it may be planning, like for succession planning or employee share ownership plans or tax planning, estate planning, uh, planning for general sale, planning to go, 
planning to go private if it's a public company or planning for for uh, you know some some kind of transaction and then getting into getting into that middle of it where you're actually doing the work whatever the work is and then some uh, we do a lot on the fallout whether it's from shareholder disputes uh, partnership disputes family law disputes damages were tax tax uh, disputes uh, state disputes um even out of deals like working cap disputes coming out of working capital issues mm-hmm. on a transaction so i'd say we kind of kind of cross the gambit of, of all the way through yeah no that's very comprehensive and very impressive uh in being able to support clients that way and and from small to large like what's what's the landscape look like in your business are there you know, the, the, yes, the national firms sort of compete in that public space, those large companies. What What's that smaller owner-managed market like? Like being able to access firms like yourself and get the support they need, is that being served, underserved? Is there much competition at that level? Yeah, I'd say, I'd, I'd say there's a lot of competition at every level. Okay. And and you see the, uh, the big firms over time have kind of said they, they go – back and forth and say, oh, maybe we should go through these to the smaller mid-sized companies because they'll grow one day to, um, to saying, no, no, we only want to focus on the, 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 the higher level uh, fee engagements. So I think in terms of, of competition, there's probably a lot of competition overall, but um, I've seen clients both on the, I mean, we have public company clients and we also most we have some public company clients, but we also have a lot of private clients, of course. Um, and and some I've had I've seen situations where the firms need the brand name, and then others where they don't need the brand name, and they're happy to have someone who has the expertise has maybe maybe pays a little more attention to them. Sometimes it's hopefully more cost effective. Maybe maybe not, but um, so I think there's a good there's certainly a good um, a uh, broad base of, of possibilities out there, provide you compl- uh, provide good service at a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. We are going to get back to the interview in just a moment. If you're listening to this episode of the podcast and wondering what you can do today to transform your CPA practice, I have a free resource I want to share with you. It's called the Integrated Advisory Video Series. This eight-part video series shares our learnings over the past 20 years of how successful accounting firms are increasing revenue by offering a more holistic service offering to their clients. You will walk away with a firm understanding of the immediate changes that are happening in the accounting industry and the impact that they will have on your firm in the future. How successful independent accounting firms are broadening their service offerings and offering a better client experience without increasing their billable hours and how you can become your client's most valued advisor by being at the core of their wealth management team. To get access to this free eight-part video series, visit integratedadvisory.ca. That's integratedadvisory.ca to learn how you can grow your firm without burning out or increasing your billable hours. Visit integratedadvisory.ca and get free access to the video series today. Now back to our guest. Well, and, you know, you talk about brand names, obviously your brand is building and you, you've done an excellent job of, of that. What, what do you feel makes your firm unique? You know, when you're, if you're compa- being compared or you're competing on a file against, say, a national firm, why, what's, what's your guys' advantage? Well, I guess it would be, you know, if someone doesn't need the real brand name, like the, like, or, and then a big firm insurance policy, right. as some of them do, um, then it's probably faster service and a little more attentive and and you're probably going to get someone who is more knowledgeable than you know if you're unless you're a huge huge file going to a big firm they don't have the resources they're not going to have the resources to put on a medium-sized file the same level of talent and expertise right that makes sense yeah well i want to segue in a moment here uh melanie to the valuation discussion. Before I do that, I'm always curious. You do so many different things. What do you love the most about what you do? What What is the, um, yeah, I, the type of I work you do? do? Every, Sorry. Yeah, that I can do everything. Okay. That's that's okay. or anything I want in general, which is which is nice. And and um, 
you know, I love, I, I do love the educational side and the keeping myself current. I've always, I've always thought that the best way to learn a subject is to have to teach it yourself. Right. And, uh, you know, I've had situations where, you know, you, you know, you're learning a week before and then you stand up and, and you sound like, you know, something and you go, geez, a, a week ago, I didn't understand this stuff. Now I do. So I, so I like that aspect. I like the being able to give back and doing the training, but I also enjoy doing the different projects when you're helping out a client, I guess a client who really needs your services, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe that was a bit of an issue with audit for me, although it was a great learning experience because you learn different companies and industries and different pain points and different, you know, you know learn how to organize files and organize your thoughts. Um, but when you're adding, when you feel like you've actually helped someone out, that, that I found was very rewarding as opposed to, yeah, okay, now they can sign off the audit report. They had to do it. They didn't really want to see you again this year, but you're there. But here, you know, if you get a report done and you meet a deadline, say for court, or you help do a creative solution for their issue or help to, to get a good shareholders agreement together, that is, can be very rewarding. Whether or not the client thanks you, because often after you speak up, you may not thank you, but, but you know, yeah. if you've done a good job. You, you feel good about oh, it. Oh, that's fantastic. And clearly you've given a lot back to uh, your clients as well as to professionals with the teaching that you've done. It's it's uh, been helpful uh, on the Canadian side. So this, uh, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. We'll talk about valuations and um, get into that a little bit. I, you know, my view and what I've learned over the years is that you're, uh, if you're not building a business for sale, you're, probably not building the best business that you can. So obviously as part of that, how you're measuring that is value and what are you sort of creating? Would you, would you sort of agree with that statement? How do you, how do you I look at com it? completely agree. I actually was just speaking to a friend contact of mine who um, is interested in selling or is looking forward and interested in selling her accounting practice. And she's trying to think about when she does it and when she kind of pulls the trigger and how she does it. Um, so one of the comments she made is, you know, I, I haven't really, I'm trying to think about whether I need to prepare that business for uh, the firm for sale, or I should pull the trigger because I know I don't go out and I mark, I never market it. I just wait for referrals and I'm a little short staff and I'm scared about getting new, new, um, new work that I can't, can't, uh, can't finish. So she, she has probably run her business, you know, to, to do a good job, to make sure, you know, to make sure her clients are happy, but never really, as you said, uh, not run it to build the practice. Right. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's, and now she's saying maybe I should. Yeah. That's a, that's, it's funny how as accountants and financial advisors, we're coaching clients all the time on how to do that. But sometimes we struggle with that even in our own companies, right? Like to actually look at a, a public accounting practice as, as that, um, you know, exactly. and I think some of that's because the work comes, it's, there's always seems to be work to do. So sometimes right. those other areas are a little bit, uh, maybe not front and center. Um, right. We like doing the work and we like, you know, we like satisfying our clients, mm -hmm. but, but we're, but many of us are not marketing and that's not really what we want, what we're, we typically do. And we're trying, we're thinking of it as a profession more so than a business, right. whereas you probably should think of it as, as both. Right. It has value and how do you grow that value over time? And yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, selling though, isn't the only reason for understanding value. So when should business owners consider getting a valuation? Let's talk about that. There's many reasons for that. Sure. Many, many reasons. So, you know, I've had clients, so I'll just go from my experience. So some, sometimes clients just need a bit of a check-in. So we started this business together um, or I started it however many years ago. We don't know where we are. Did, have we done a good job? Is there some other, something else we should do? So it may be just to check in. Probably in the back of their minds at some point is that we may want to sell or, you know, do some succession planning. But right now we just want to check in and, and before we go to the next step. So help to develop strategy. Um, if you are executing an estate plan or a tax plan, then there's, there, as 
you guys probably know the income tax act will dictate when you have to have evaluation mm -hmm. um, or sh i should say should because i've been many clients who should have done it and then um they take their chances with cra and the then dice, cra comes yeah. on the door and it's kind of let's let's fix it up yeah. now um you know other planning things where you're bringing in partners shareholders employees but getting together getting together a plan as to how to bring them in and a shareholders agreement um maybe even a marriage contract or a cohab contract right. which is very similar to a, a shareholders agreement in theory mm -hmm. then of course if you are in the the midst of 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 a dispute situation then you may have no choice you know if it's a shareholder dispute the corporations act will be or, or court will dictate when you should have to do it or a, a family law matter um, or you know the tax matters etc um, so many different and, and you know if you are actually getting to the point of thinking of selling then it's a, a it's a good idea to, to check out the value at that point as well mm -hmm. so accountants that you work with what, what, what would you say the state of the accounting professions knowledge is in this area in terms of when they need to get evaluation done do you feel that they've got a, a good handle on that do you feel that sometimes they try and sort of navigate that on their own what, what what's your sort of take from doing this work for a long time i think it varies and and i'll give you an example when the you know when different rules come out that say you know if you do something you know if, if you're involved in this um from a tax perspective and and um and we may find you advisor guilty or uh have some reason to charge you then that usually puts the fear in in, in accounts um i would say that it really really depends i think the knowledge level is certainly increasing overall and i think part of that is because there's more training on valuations in university for example so there's more awareness and coming right out of university going into practice um, i think some accountants are very good at recognizing when they can do something and when they shouldn't and kind of assessing the risk because we are very uh, accountants are very good at assessing risk that's mm -hmm. kind of a one of our Big skill strengths found, found yeah skill. core skill exactly yeah. Exactly. But then there are accountants who um, may feel like they want to be everything to their clients and they don't want, they don't necessarily want to admit that they can't do everything. They may be great at certain things, but they just don't want to say, I think you should bring an evaluator or a tax specialist in this, an international tax specialist or an insurance advisor. I want to do everything for you. Um, so sometimes I think it's just, being fearful of, 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 um, what the client will think, but, but generally if you are, if you bring in good resources, you tend to, to have a better relationship with the clients and a better right. result. Makes so sense. I think in short, it, it depends. Mm -hmm. Every practitioner has a bit of a different uh, perspective on it. I think so it sounds like the education's getting better, at least at the early stages on this. But I, I also think that, you know, accounts, you know, they're good at math, they're good at numbers, they do the financials, they have a good sense of where where it's at with the client. But I also think that they can, they think that it's just a formula and they plug it in and this is the math. Right. And I think, you know, speak to that. It's not just math. There's so many other pieces that go on to come up with a, a value. Maybe talk to talk sure. to some of those other sides that isn't just about the math. Sure. Yeah. Valuation is a big big secret box and only if you're a CBV can you find out about it. Yeah. Not, not true. <laughs> um, but there are, so here's a couple of things I've sort of seen with accountants in, in the past. And, it, and I, I agree, they, they are a wealth of knowledge. So when I get engaged to do what, let's just assume it's a litigation or, or it's just evaluation for ta a tax plan or an ESOP or something. The, the accountants are the most amazing resource because especially those who have, I get very excited when the client tells me they've been with their accountant for a long time. And I go, Oh, that's awesome. As opposed yeah. to the clients who churn every couple right. of years and I go, You're, yeah, not a good thing. Yeah. Um, but I know that they'll be able to be my, 
first of all, they'll probably understand my language. Mm -hmm. And if you have a client that is not as sophisticated or not used to evaluation evaluators or forensic accountants, they may not get it, but the accountant can be a great translator of what's going on and, and a, and a great resource in terms of collecting information and, and talking to the client. Um, so I think that's, that's a great positive. Um, I think some, the mentality of when, when accountants are doing historical um, financial statements and they're not in the thick of, uh, for example, I do a lot of court work, so I'm cross-examined a lot. So I know how people, I know what the, uh, they're going to use another lawyer, how they're yeah. going to cross-examine me. I know what the judge is gonna, going to think. So I think in that perspective, um, the accountants not so much, and the accountants often are accountants are often thinking historical, and and me and and because that's the right thing to do for financial statements and tax returns, whereas a valuation is is supposed to be its perspective, mm -hmm. right? The view, the the, the gist of it's a windshield yeah. exactly, and the gist of evaluation is that someone's going to pay based on the future. Mm -hmm. They're not going to pay based on the past. The past only gives them, potentially gives them comfort. But but if something substantively has changed in the industry or the business, they're not going to pay you based on the past results. Yeah, oh, that makes good sense. The, you know, you mentioned litigation and um, some of the things that can happen based off how the value is being used. Obviously, there's simple situations and there's very complex situations where it's important. Yes. Talk about valuation. What's involved? Are there different levels? I, you know, my understanding is you. It's almost like a kind of like notice to reader or compilations, audits, reviews, right? You've got similar types of levels within an, an evaluation. Just speak to that a little bit. Sure. Maybe where they fit. You know, where the lower levels fit versus say the more comprehensive levels. Yeah, good, good question. And of course, we have to call it the accounting side, the compilation engagement yes. now, right? Yeah, that's yeah. correct. <laughs> it's going to be hard to, to switch over to that, but yes. Um, so so just a bit of a his, history that, that valuation in valuation profession in Canada was born in 1971 when the Tax Act came out and put this term fair market value. Um, so as I always say, a bunch of very smart accountants, CAs at that time said, hmm, this could be another line of business. So the accountants kind of took that, uh, went into this and, and started this valuation profession. So not surprisingly, you've got some, a lot of similarities uh, that come historically. So one of the things that, that kind of has come up over the years, um, and, and it was formalized, I think sometime in two th early 2000s, uh, was it accountants in practice were, sorry, evaluators in practice, most of them who were CAs at the time, but it's now switched, there's, there's more of a mix, um, knew about the notice to readers at that time are now compilation engagements, review engagements and audits. So they started doing Started brought out these three levels, and it was, you know, that's what was going on in practice. But the CICBV, Canadian Institute of Chartered Business Evaluators, did not um, formalize that in the standards until I think it was the early two thousands. But don't quote me on that. Um, and and so the idea was there's the low level of valuation assurance, there's the medium level of valuation assurance, and there's the high level, and. I used to equate them to the compilation engagement review and audit, um, but there, there's a there's a difference though because every one of those levels are provide a conclusion on value. So regardless of whether you get me to do the high level or the low level, I'm going to conclude that based on what I've done and the assumptions. Here's and, the number. Yeah. Uh, here's the number. Here's my conclusion. Whereas you know, review engagement is a non-opinion, and mm -hmm. same with the. Same with the uh, compilation engagement. So in terms of when they're they're used, it, it's I think you know some people's practice varies, but um, I think the high the the and some people will tell you they always use comprehensive depending on the work they do. But that's the high high level. Right? The high level yeah. comprehensive that if you want to equate it to it's like an audit yeah. kind of idea. So that is I, I would say in practice it's not required. Um, 
except occasionally you get a court order or an endorsement that says thou must do use this this level. Um, I don't usually see in shareholders agreements, they're usually not sophisticated enough to, to specify a level. Um, and in any, any public company transactions or issues will always require the comprehensive, right? So it's a going private transaction or really a party transaction that you'll automatically default to that. Um, so, so some people will tell you that in practice, my practice may be five, 10% is comprehensive. Others will be more depending on the work they're doing. Um, so it's really between the middle and the lower one. And, and I struggle with that because the idea of the low one was if things, if you just need an indication, if you just, you know, if something might settle, why are we going to spend all this money on valuators? Why don't we just go with the lowest one? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes that works, but, and, and, you know, for non-risky tax transactions, let's say it's a, just a freeze, then, then the calculation should in theory be fine as long as it's a good calculation. Um, but the, the challenge I've found over the years is that even though they tell you, they don't really care what the number is, they just have to throw it on a T2057. They want to know when you come up and you say, well, here's your value. It's 3 million for your company. You stick that get, get your tax person to stick that on the T2057 form. They say, oh, my business is only worth 3 million. That's <laughs> it. I thought it was worth 20 million. So it's not always quite that way. So, right. and, and I, I tell people whenever there's any possible level of uh, scrutiny mm-hmm. coming on, don't even, don't, don't cheap out, just go with the middle because the easiest point of attack when I see someone's valuation report and its calculation, first thing you say is, oh, they only did a calculation. Yeah. Now if they've done an estimate, who knows what the numbers could be? Because right in the, the report, right in an estimate report, um, well, let's say it's right in the calculation report, you have to say, um, had I done a, a comprehensive or an estimate, the numbers may have different, but different, but I can't tell you how much they would have differed. So you're you're telling the lawyers, you're giving them fodder right away for yeah, cross examination. Makes sense. So calculation, estimate, comprehensive. Um, sounds like the majority are being done in those two first levels. What's the what's the yeah. difference in the work that's involved in the cost? You mentioned cost earlier and how that sometimes becomes a bit of a roadblock. I know in my experience. Right you know, that people tend to steer away, they, you know, shareholder agreements, they want to push formulas in so they don't have to pay for valuations or, you know, you talk to clients and they're always wondering about, well, what's the cost of that? And and they're concerned about that. So, you know, what is involved in the process and um, what does that cost, even bookends sort of feel like in most cases? Yeah. Okay. And I'll come back to the shareholder's agreement because I want to go into that. But um, so, so just with one proviso, as it would be for accountants do, work, doing um, compilation engagement or review engagement or audit, it, the general rule is, you know, of course, if you come across something that gives you discomfort or doesn't isn't passing the smell test, regardless of whether you've been engaged, what level you've been engaged at, you need to follow it up. And that, so that becomes very interesting because a lot of the, a, a big part of my practice seems to be um, dealing with financial information that is questionable Mm -hmm. and you don't know it at the time until you get into it. And then you have to question whether it becomes a garbage in garbage out. So even if, even if someone engages us at the lowest level and we find something that's not making sense, then we have to follow it up. Um, but the general differences are the extent of work and diligence. Uh, the extent of industry and market research, and often just the size of the report, um, because the standards talk about what has to go into each level. Right. And you're you're welcome to put more in if you want, but but at least you have to do this. So I'd say in general, at the lower level, that in theory you're not doing, you're not looking at comps, but then the question becomes, of course, if there are good comps out there, are you coming up with a multiple that isn't really based in reality? 
So one, I'll just add something on the shareholders yeah, agreement. Sure. Excellent point you raised. So I, I, so when I get involved in helping out with the drafting a shareholders agreement, obviously I'm just doing the valuation clauses and the trigger clauses and things, not the lawyers dealing and the tax people are dealing with the others, uh, the rest of it. I, the, the options are exactly as you said. Do you want to go with a process or do you want to go with a formula? And you're right. A lot of clients will say, I want to go with the formula because I don't want to come back to you, Melanie, every every time something happens and pay you another five, ten, or whatever, mm -hmm. however much it costs. Thousands. So if you choose a formula, I I have no problem with that, but but I will draft this nice report after doing a valuation of the company, turn it into some kind of big picture formula, and then in my reporting letter I say, Here's a formula. That formula may be great today, yeah. tomorrow. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> a week later, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. The further, but definitely revisit it every two to three years. Yeah, yeah. It's tough to capture the nuances of a business in a in a this plus this equals this. It it just doesn't, you know. And and you you'd mentioned earlier. Um, the importance of understanding how the industry is changing, doing the research on multiples. And I mean, you might right. have a formula today based on how the, the economy and the market and the industry they're in is working. And that could change. You look at the impact of COVID, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. Exactly. But there's lots of things that will impact that where that formula is kind of useless. Um, it is, but you know, the bit, you got to start at the, at the big picture level. Mm -hmm. So if the parties are saying, I'm willing to take the risk that I'm going to get the short end of the straw when it, when time, when it, like right. I may be the one that gets not enough or, or I pay too much. If you're willing to take that risk as opposed, you know, you do that risk, um, you know, that opportunity and versus risk assessment, then fine. But as long as you understand that, that that formula is, is not going to be fair market value. It just yeah. isn't, but it may be fair enough. Yeah, it's close enough that they're comfortable close with enough. it. And if it right. saves them some money. So obviously smaller valuation companies, that may be more efficient to look at it that way. The larger the company gets, I'm, the larger those gaps probably could be. And, exactly. and they can also afford to, to invest in the valuation. So, um, and I'll give you, I'll give you a little example of that. We did one, uh, a couple of years ago where the process in the agreement was both parties, if there was a trigger event, both parties would get evaluator. And then if they were within, I think it was a 10%, you just averaged it. If you're outside of that, then the two valuators were supposed to agree on an, a third valuator. And if they couldn't, they go to court and they would get a third, the court would appoint a third valuator. And that third valuator would decide whether they want to pick either one or they want it, whatever they want to do or do their own. Right. So this was a company that was probably, it was, a, I think it was a hundred million of value. So we got to, we did those two, it was outside of the 10%. Um, and the, but the, so the fees for the third valuator ended up more than the, their, us and the original valuators. Um, and so the fees were not low at all in total, but our client was really, really happy because they ended up very close to our number. Um, and they were more than happy to have paid those fees. Whereas exactly as you said, small clients, they just couldn't afford the cost of three valuators. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on the, on the cost that we talked about that a little bit earlier, so Industry-wise, like what what can companies sort of expect as bookends on these things? Like calculation, estimate, comprehensive. Oh. Obviously, there's a huge range in there in terms of what that feels like. On average, right. what does that sort of look like? Just for if there's accountants in our audience that are kind of wondering right. what to expect if they're bringing a evaluator to the table. Yeah, it's a, it's tough to say averages. So I'm gonna I'm going to qualify. And anyone can, of course, contact me and give me yeah. their their scenario and I can give them. Yeah. It'd be more, much more You need to customize it and understand the client for sure. I get that. Right. So if you're talking of uh, one company, let's say one company, not this complicated uh, organization chart, but one company that um, 
is fairly straightforward, not a startup company. So you're not necessarily getting into this kind of cash flow or projections um, and, and not huge issues. And, and you're using, you hopefully have good financial information, mm -hmm. not having to deal with interim information that isn't reliable. And we end up having to be the bookkeeper, the accountant, um, maybe four to four to five, four to six thousand, okay. something like that. Yeah, that's it. That um, sounds sounds yeah. about what I've heard. And then on the comprehensive side, obviously that can be, that can be uh, tens of thousands of dollars to kind of go through that type of an exercise. Just be Yeah. Careful. Well, I usually say in gen in general, totally in general, you can probably say that you're going to do one and a half, 150 to 200% as you go up. So not, not necessarily double, but close, maybe close to double. Okay. That's a good uh, rule of thumb. But of course, if you have terrible financial information, then, then you may put yourself out of a out of a valuation, and you're more into the forensic piece and fixing things up, which which can often cost more than a valuation. Mm -hmm, for sure, <laughs> that's that's the uh, that's the thing, right? Like, it's what are you willing to invest on the front end to sort of keep things simpler on the back end? So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So let's. Uh, I was going to jump into multiples and EBITDA. We may come back to that mm -hmm. if we have time, but I want to. You know, we're in the midst of a pandemic. COVID's caused a lot of changes, hurt a lot of businesses, helped others. Um, values have definitely been impacted, maybe even processes. What, what are, what's, how has that impacted the work you're doing with your clients? Well, I would say it's, it's, it's definitely impacting. It depends when. So we, I did a lot of presentations during, um, during the, the pandemic about different, you know, different times and my comments would be totally different each time. Um, right at the beginning, the entire valuation world was struggling with how do we deal with A, the fact that there are no deals being done at that mm -hmm. time. The markets just, there's, there's no liquidity. Um, what do we do here? So the, at the beginning, the uh, concept was that multiples are definitely lower risk is higher there's you know one leading body in the u.s that most people follow and look at for some cost of capital guidance was saying you have to add in a one percent premium for covid just ballpark because there's overall risk across the board so mm -hmm. it's another got to add in a percentage and they took that off a number number or at least a year ago i think that's they they recommended that interesting you take that away so I'd, I'd say the market, you know, def, it also changed the valuation approach because what we ended up, we had clients who had either done a tax plan or reorganization or were in the midst of doing it and hadn't quite signed, signed up. And then this hit and they said, okay, this is, things have changed. We need, Melanie, we need you to tell us how you think the value has changed. And if the value has gone down a lot, then we may do a different plan if it's got you know who knows so we ended up doing a lot of scenario analysis and saying you know based on these assumptions here's where the value may be or these assumptions and that they take that back and and go back to their tax planners or advisors to figure out whether they needed to change the plan refreeze or whatever they were, mm -hmm. were implementing yeah or i saw a lot of people sorry they, i saw a lot of people holding off on like employee plans at that point as well. Yeah, well, you know, so we we're all, everybody's talking right now about the great resignation and uh, companies are struggling with retention and sort of how are they attracting people? How, how are you seeing any of the strategies changing? Are you seeing more companies embracing, you know, whether it's phantom uh, or equity-based compensation to try and tie people to the value of organizations longer term? What what are you seeing happening today because of COVID? Yeah, I've, I've um, definitely seen that. And, I, I, and whether or not they're implementing it, they are certainly thinking of it because they're trying to be creative on how do we keep these, how do we keep our staff? Because the cost of losing staff, although at the beginning of, of COVID, you may have been very happy to lose your staff, not so much now mm -hmm. because there's such a challenge retaining and finding people and, and then training them. And do you train them virtually? You know, how do you do that? 
So yeah, it's, it's definitely a move for creative options and thinking about bringing time people in for a bit of a longer term period. So it's interesting. You probably had some clients that were needing to readdress their planning, their valuations for purposes of their own ownership group, but they're likely even leveraging those now to deal with what are we going to do with our people and how do we, how do we keep them part of this? So that's, that's interesting to see. Uh, Let's, let's switch gears a little bit. We've touched on succession planning a little bit. Um, what does that process look like? How, how does your firm sort of support companies and accountants that are saying, we got a, a business owner here, you know, maybe we're five years out, we've, we've got to start thinking about succession planning. What does that, what does that sort of look like? Just walk us through that. Yeah, it's a very uh, great question. It's a very individualized uh, process. Um, because for the first thing really is if we get involved if we get involved early on it's sort of checking out the strategy and sometimes we're involved to to kind of do evaluation let's say to see whether it makes sense at this point so someone is saying um you know i think five years from now i really want to be out of here um but am i going to have enough to retire so let's figure out how much you might get if you sold and how does that translate into um, into net after-tax proceeds in your in your pocket um, but if you but and and then out of that what are the trigger points for value and if you change and do, do certain things here what might that look like if you revisited this in three years four years however long and what it might might look like um, so I think that the strategy is really, really important up front and, and making sure making sure that business owners understand what that means to succession plan, whether they're getting out totally or partly, because often that means um, less control and, and less control for someone who has built a business. And as I always say, may, it may be their favorite child um, is, is, is a challenging thing and thinking about what are you going to do afterwards if you are totally out um you know you've you spent your whole life on this business you have no hobbies you and your your spouse separated a long time ago so what are you going to do with your time your kids don't speak to you or whatever it is or maybe you like to travel oh, you can't travel that it's hard to travel right now so you know thinking of being realistic about uh, about the strategy, and then trying to time it. So, so we may get involved up, up front. Um, we may get involved when the other advisors have already sort of decided what's happening, and then we're, they're putting it together, and they need evaluation or or, or quality of earnings report or something to to kind of cement the plan. Mm-hmm. That that makes good sense. I. Um... You know, one of the things I've noticed over the years and worked with working with different companies that do corporate advisor work, M&A work, you know, often there's big fees on those transactions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they don't want a lot to kind of interfere with that process. And I'm, I'm I was always confused as to and this is why I like the phrase succession planning, because it requires you to to uh, look into the future as well, not just based on the transaction, the event. Where do you see retirement planning fitting into that? Like, you know, I, I find it hard to, to look at a sale of a business and go, well, you're going to get X when we don't even know if X is the right number. So how, right. how do you sort of integrate that through succession planning with the work you do? It, it, I, exactly. And I think that's a great point is that real looking at what someone might get. And so if you do sell and different, and I think scenario analysis is a big we use them, mm-hmm. we do a lot of that and everyone should. And, you know, even in the litigation work we do, um, courts love when you do different scenarios because uh, on things that may are not black and white. So if, if something different can happen, then, you know, tell the court that if this happens, here's what it looks like. Same idea for the business owners. You know, if, you know, if this happens, here's what you might get. Now, what are you going to do with those proceeds? Is that enough for you to retire? So also having, you know, analyzing what your lifestyle looks, the owner's lifestyle looks like after 
the six, the plan. You know, if they're going to continue to work for a bit, do they have some income coming in? Or if they're totally cut off and they're not working at all, then, and they've got $10 million or whatever it is on the net proceeds, what is their risk tolerance? What should they invest it in? And what, what will their retirement income look like? Yeah, there's, there's all these complex things, right? And I guess, you know, with, from my perspective, it takes a, it takes a team approach. You know, you're starting getting information from the trusted account that has that relationship. But very quickly, you know, you're starting to involve shareholder agreements to document some of these things. So you've got the legal angle. Um, you're starting to have conversations around what is that future look like post-sale and post-valuation of this. Um, you know, you need to be in, incorporating maybe the investment team or the financial planning people that are in that, how, how does you, how do you like to work with that? What, what's, what's the way that you guys sort of create that integration with your clients? Uh, do you take the lead on that? Do you sort of, uh, I, I, obviously it's probably different every time, but what, what, how do you like to work in, in that type of an environment? Yeah, that's a, another great question. Um, you know, I like to think of the holistic approach and the collaborative approach will, will certainly get a better, um, a better result and and i you know do the amount of dispute work i do and have done i realize how often things could have prevented been prevented if someone had used that holistic or collaborative approach and someone had taken the lead and it, because often you know you may see this this happens in deals this happens in tax bonding it happens in anything where someone someone comes up with a great plan uh, but someone isn't there to execute it right. and it falls apart. And then all of a sudden someone realizes, oh, they forgot to do, you know, forgot to do evaluation of these pref shares. Now someone's trying to redeem the, the holders redeeming them, but we can't redeem them because we don't have the valuation. So we got to get an evaluator to do that and then we can start redeeming it. So what I, my personal preference is working in a team. I mean, you don't always have to have a team. Sometimes the issues are pretty discreet, right. but often the best way to do something is team and assigning someone or, or someone taking the lead and they're going to be there from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Perfect. And we can, we can certainly do that, but, but I find that the trusted advisor, whether it's the accountant or sometimes the investor who's ever setting up the plan is the one who's going to be there the whole time. The lawyer, probably not the lawyer. It may be there to do the paperwork and maybe gone. Um, so often it's the trust, it may not be the evaluator, but it's probably the trusted advisor that, that needs to take a proactive role. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, uh, I love hearing that because I think that's the part of the professional services industry today. That's just, sometimes it's very fragmented and, uh, you know, clients don't get the full, you know, they might get part of the plan or it's not executed and you end up with all these issues that kind of come from it and not great outcomes all the time. So. Um, it's, it, you know, I, I would expect with what you seeing the size of your firm, how you guys have done and just knowing the work you're doing that you guys are, uh, delivering your great client experience there. Uh, last question that I want to talk about books for a moment. So just there lots of accounting firms as they're growing, they, they tend to go from generalists to maybe they have a tax partner and then maybe they add a corporate advisory group for, mm -hmm. for firms that are looking to increase their value. And maybe it is through corporate advisory. You've had success in that area. What what advice would you give accounting firms out there that are looking to get into this area? Well, looking if you're looking to grow the firm, I think the first thing is again have a strategy. You know, sometimes you see I get involved in helping out succession planning with accounting firms or selling or whatever. And I get a lot of people say, oh, I, I want to buy this. I, like, I want to buy, I want to buy. Um, and just, you see companies buying for the sake of buying, but it should come from a, a, a point of strategy and well thought out strategy that it makes sense. So if you are thinking that you want to, you know, you want to grow the firm, grow the services and corporate advisory evaluations or forensic or whatever it is, is, is a good um, service, be realistic about it about whether you you can support that function um, because if someone's going to come into a firm um, 
if they don't have a book of business already, then they're going to be expect to get something from you. And my experience over the years is that if a firm is not in that area, it's a tough thing to grow. Mm -hmm. However, if you bring in someone who does have that expertise, then that's great, but you have to be willing to probably be creative on remuneration and arrangement side, because they may, they may have come from a, 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 a place where the remuneration structure is different, mm -hmm. but, but sometimes you don't even, you don't need like building a practice and bringing someone in is not necessary. You don't always have to do it. You can have some virtual arrangements where you can satisfy your client's needs, um, much more, much more expeditiously and mm -hmm. cost effectively than building up a whole group. Mm -hmm. Instead of worrying about all the retention and training and all of the pieces that go along with that. Right. But obviously right. you've had some great success with that um, and have found ways to attract good people and keep them. So kudos to you, not an easy thing to do in that business. Uh, switch, switching gears here to just books. You've, you co-authored a book. Um, I wanted you to, said book and I didn't know what kind of books yeah, you were going to talk well, about. I'm going to so. talk about a couple of things here. But, a few books. <laughs> but yeah, so you co-authored a book, Understanding Business Valuation Reports. Um, yeah. yeah, what talk a little bit about it. What, what drove you to write that? Um, you know, did you enjoy the process? Are you writing more? I Well, I mean, I'd love to write more. But it was it was a bit of a COVID project. So okay. my esteemed colleague, Dr. Howard Johnson, that probably everyone knows, uh, and I or uh, worked on this project during COVID. So it was one of those things where who knows what's going to happen during COVID. Maybe maybe we will never get another file. And uh, he he does a lot of MA advisory, so you know he probably thought maybe I'm never no, they're all businesses will be shut down and never going to get another file. So why not write a book? Yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a great experience and, um, uh, you know, it wasn't that as it didn't take that long in the end, it was actually surprisingly quick to come good. out. I am doing one other, I am working on something else for, um, actually for CPA Canada, which is putting out, um, a professional advisory, um, assistance in the area of valuation. So for practitioners who um, want to do valuations or regardless are going to do it, this is sort of a guide to help out. Oh, perfect. Um, so we're going to lose to the earlier question on how to kind of get going and doing that. That's great. Right. Yeah. Right. But recognizing that it may not always be there. Certain things you may want to stay away from in terms of valuation, but some of them they're you know maybe fine but if you're going to do it then then make sure you're sort of prepared for it and understand what's involved right and so let's uh talk about that quickly what is if you know obviously the cbv program is is that where to start if you're jumping into that valuation space yeah i think you you know if you're going to make a commitment to the valuation for like going that route then certainly start your your uh course of studies. Some people, you know, depending on the state of their career or if they, they're already busy with their practice, may not want to invest as much time as, as would be involved because mm -hmm. it's like going through another CA right. fee or C fee. Um, so there are lots of courses out there, lots of other training um, you can get if you just want to get some idea of what's involved. But if you do, you know, if you're going through and you want to get the CBD and you want to start being able to put your stamp on reports, then certainly going through the uh, CBD program of studies is the right way to go. Yeah, perfect. I, other books. What are I always ask my guests? The one okay. question I always ask my guests is, what book? Other books are you reading? I was in strategic coach for a long time, and I always appreciated hearing what others were reading and uh, got a lot of value right. out of that. So, yeah, what 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 do you have on your desk? Yeah, well, when I have time, which is, of course, uh, <laughs> never <laughs> a bit of a commodity, I, I, I love those old, old novels, big time. Okay. But I am, right now, I am in the process of sa reading Sapiens. Okay, um, interesting. Definitely not, not a business-related book at all, but very, very interesting insight into to who we are as human beings okay. and uh, what makes us tick and what sort of historically made us tick. By um, by Yuval Noah Harari. Okay, cool. Very interesting fellow. Well, I'm going to check it out. Thank you so much Great. for sharing that. 
And thank you. Just before we wrap up, Melanie, I just um, wanted to sort of if if our audience listeners here today are maybe wanting to learn more about this or more about your firm, what what's the best way? What resources can you can you offer to them, and what's the best way maybe to get a hold of you or your firm? So you can always check out our website, uh, kalexvaluations.com, K-A-L-E-X-V-A-L-U-A-T-I-O-N-S.com. And you can reach me in my email at melanie at kalexvaluations.com, M-E-L-A-N-I-E. And you can also feel free to call my office, 416-488-9590, extension 225, and connect with me through LinkedIn as well. I love LinkedIn. It's a great resource. It's a great resource. Maybe yes. that might even be how you and I connected originally. So it that's may great. have been. Yes. <laughs> so thank you, LinkedIn. Yeah. So the other uh, final comment, you, you, we didn't get a chance to talk much about your GTA network of accountants, your finance network. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, we're out west here. A lot of our, our listeners are we're expanding, hopefully, across the country as we continue to right. do this. But, but I, you know, if they're interested in being part of that network or joining or learning more about what you do there, how, how do they go about doing that? Sure, you can just check out the website. So the way that program work it, that is, we have we offer a bunch of different um, speakers and on various topics, both technical and non-technical, and technical being a broad variety of areas, including we had a family law session, um, we had decision making and um, and a tax session this week. So we have a lot of, of content. Um, so you can feel free to uh, check out gtaaccountantsnetwork.com and there's sort of live upcoming webinars and then everything we do is uh, posted on demand. And we really try to focus on getting wonderful speakers. Um, I believe Tim is going to be one of them shortly. Uh, so wonderful speakers on excellent topics and uh, at a very at a cost effective uh, means. That so. it, it's a great resource. I, you guys have uh, done an amazing job of bringing good speakers together and great content on a regular basis, which is tough to do. So that's that's likely a full time job for you, let alone anything <laughs> else that you're doing. But or for some for someone else. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> you're good at delegating. That's what you need to exactly. do. Anyways, well, thank you so much, Melanie, for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to share it with us and share your experience. Um, built a great firm, great resource. I'd encourage all of our community to reach out to Melanie, get to know her a little bit and her team. I'm sure there's ways that she can collaborate and she can give you a hand with either your business or your clients. So on that note, thank you, Melanie. And thanks so much, Tim. It was a pleasure. Yeah. And thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. And that ends this edition of the Innovative Accountant Podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed our time together. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Innovative Accountant Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed the show and maybe even learned something new. If you're interested in transforming your client experience to create sustainable firm growth, get in touch with us by visiting integratedadvisory.ca set up your free call with one of our integrated advisory experts. Visit integratedadvisory.ca to schedule your free call today. And we will see you next time right here on the Innovative Accountant Podcast. Production of the podcast is by AppArt Branding Co. and can be found online at appart.co. That's A-T-H-E-A-R-T dot C-O.